Bienvenidos and welcome to the Jackman Sports Show. I am your host as always, Matthew Miranda, joining you for episode 97 in our slow snail-like crawl to 100. Uh, long time no see. It's been a month. I uh, was not planning for it to be a month, but there has been an inordinate amount of um, pain and difficulty in my life in the last month. There's been a lot of cancer in loved ones and Alzheimer's in loved ones and other things happening that I could not uh, just really move beyond until now. So I miss you guys. Miss everybody. Glad to be back here. Glad to be talking about today's subjects. Um, a couple little before we begin, just to let you know some future guests that are lined up or lining up. I believe that uh, next week we will have Chris Herring on. Herring is currently, God, I struggle to keep track of him. He's always somewhere different. I think he's now with ESPN again. Um, we've had Herring on before. He's a great guy, NBA um, insider expert. We'll be talking to him right around the time that the it's not the first half of the season technically, but right around when teams are stopping for the All-Star break. We'll have Herring on, which will be right after the NBA trade deadline ends. So we will have things to talk about um, NBA-wise with Chris Herring. I also believe later this month, um, near the end of the month, we're going to have, well, before that, um, sometime this month, I'm very excited. I've been trying for a few years to get this guest. Uh, we're going to have Sydney Bauer on. Sydney, um, she covers kind of everything all over the world, um, particularly the Olympics and a lot of international sporting stuff. I will give you more specifics as that date nears, but um, Sydney is amazing and covers everything really, really, really deeply and well. So I've been very excited about having her on. And then uh, from The Athletic, there's a writer named Dan Robson, who I am hoping near the end of February to have on. He also writes about a lot of different things, but what I'm interested in, especially with Robson, is... He's written about a few stories from the NHL that I'm interested in that I've mentioned on the pod in the past, not the actual like standings and, and wins and losses of hockey, but more some things happening off the ice. He has a, a really good story a while ago in The Athletic about um, a player named Donald Brashear, who when Brashear played years ago, uh, he was known as a real, like maybe like one of the real enforcers in hockey. One of the guys who like is there because he will beat up anyone on your team if you mess with like his team's guys and Rashir is in his fifties now, and he is still playing in a hockey league somewhere in Canada. And Robson caught up and wrote a piece about him. He also has written extensively about the, um, the hockey Canada sex scandal, which is like a never ending road of just ugly shit. Like literally every other day, there is some story um, unfolding that kind of breaks your heart from that personally and institutionally. So we'll have a lot about that. He's also written about basketball and some other things. So Dan Robson has just written about, he just writes about really interesting things and he has about four or five articles that um, I want to talk to him about. So he'll be on, but probably later in the month, Herring, hopefully next week, Sydney, I'll keep you posted. I should be able to keep you posted. I have still been locked out of the Patreon. Um, so I haven't been able to post anything in there or update, but I've been checking the uh, Jacobin email and I'm relieved to say no one has written, um, particularly with any complaints. So it seems like we're still pretty much holding it together, but as soon as I am able to access that and I reached out to Patreon and 
got some responses from them. So I think I'll be able to get back on this week. Uh, look out for notifications there. I will let you know when we have some more confirmation on some of these guests. Uh, also, a couple of topics that we're not going to do today, but I feel like I'm a little bit older now than when this show started. I should be a little more mature. I should be able to give you more than just the moment. So I want to give you a little look ahead. Um, there's a couple, two topics I know we're going to talk about very soon, maybe next week when a little more detail emerges. Um, one very breaking news today, uh, literally maybe a couple hours ago, um, so I barely even understand the story yet, but ESPN, um, sorry, Disney, who owns ESPN, Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers slash Discovery have combined to form apparently a single sports streaming platform. I do not understand the implications of all this. I do not know the details yet. My instinct tells me this will not be good for sports fans because to have ESPN, sorry, I keep forgetting who owns who, to have Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers slash Discovery all joining forces in one streaming platform is reducing options for the customer. So I suspect this will not be good for anybody. Um, and I suspect these companies will find a way to maintain their separate silo. So you will still have Disney sports through ESPN. You will still have Fox sports. You will still have whatever Warner brothers discovery sports is, but then on top of all the streaming services, you're paying or cable for that. They're going to add this other one too. So as details emerge, um, We'll talk more about that, and I'll see if I can get some of the uh, legal or business guests that we've had on the past, maybe Mike Forkunov or someone else, um, to elaborate on what this might mean. Also, in a very interesting <laughs> and not unexpected twist today, the the mayor of Las Vegas told the Oakland A's, who are supposed to be moving to Las Vegas, much to the chagrin of a half century, more than a half century, of loyal fans in the Bay Area, uh, Oakland's had a lot of problems, the A's management, with just getting out of Vegas and getting the stadium deal set in, I'm sorry, getting out of Oakland and getting the stadium deal set in Vegas. And the mayor of Las Vegas today said straight up, like, the A's should stay away. They should they should look for what they're looking for in Oakland. So obviously more will break from that. I cannot remember in my life ever, and this could speak to the, the wealth of Las Vegas. Las Vegas is not, as much as they want, you know, teams everywhere. They did get the Golden Knights in the NHL. They did get the Raiders also out of um, Oakland. It's a pretty well-to-do town. I just read that they're, um, they've are they had like a 40%, I think, population growth in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Vegas is doing well. So maybe there are exceptionalities to why they can do this. But I cannot remember in my life ever the mayor of a metropolis that is uh, potentially inheriting a sports team or stealing it. Um, telling the, the team, like, just stay away. The A's are such a mess that this is, I love this. I can't wait to get more in this story. They have somehow managed to both alienate the market that they've been in forever. Because remember, the mayor of Oakland and the, the fans have repeatedly been like, we want the A's to stay. We want to work with them. And the A's insist it just it can't be done. It can't be done. There's no way it can be done. It just cannot be done. We have to go to Las Vegas. And now Las Vegas is saying, maybe don't. And scratch the maybe. She didn't say maybe. She said don't. So there will be more on that coming up soon. Today's episode centers on the idea that money isn't everything. Um, and we're going to talk quite a bit today about four. Is it four? Sorry. One, two, three, four. Yes. Four different examples from the world of sports 
of how money is not everything. And I'm going to begin with a story that has not happened, but the fact that it hasn't happened, I think, speaks to this point also. Uh, in the NBA, you may be familiar, there's a player named Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, Brogdon currently plays for the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, he's a very good, solid player, very good shooter. He can run an offense. He can play either guard spot. Uh, very cerebral player. The trade, the trade deadline is approaching, and a lot of teams are interested in Malcolm Brogdon. Specifically, a lot of really good teams are interested in Malcolm Brogdon because he's just kind of a perfect, like, you can put him in almost any situation and he works. Like, if you need him to come off the bench, he'll come off the bench. He has no, he doesn't seem to have, like, a big ego. He's 31. He's not still trying to prove him. Like, he's been in the league a while now. He's, he's, this is now his ninth season. Like, he knows he's established. He's not, it's not about all the personal glory. He seems like a winner. If you need him to play point guard, he can play point. If you need him to get you some shooting, he's a great, great, great shooter um, from everywhere, outside the arc, inside the arc, free throw line. Wonderful shooter, unselfish player, very, very, very um, likable player, and a guy that a lot of teams are interested this year. But they're interested in Rogan for two reasons, the teams that are interested in him. Because if you're a bad team, he doesn't, you know, like Portland, his value is kind of, his on-court value is somewhat limited because Portland's a terrible team that is not trying to win games this year. And most of their best younger players are guards, which means they need minutes and reps, which means they need to play more than Brogdon. So if Portland were, were really just trying to win every single game possible, Brogdon would play more. They would definitely keep him. He has a really interesting good contract um, for next season. If you were any... You know, the Knicks are interested. A lot of teams are interested. If you're a good team, it makes sense that Malcolm Brogdon is like someone that you would want. But the other reason teams are very interested in Malcolm Brogdon is because his contract for next season is extremely attractive and reasonable. He has one year left on his deal after this season. So if you trade for Malcolm Brogdon now, when you get to the summer, he makes around $20 million a year, which by NBA standards is a, a middle-class contract. But the value of a middle-class contract is, especially now with this new, very um, rigid, punitive collective bargaining agreement that makes it much harder than it's ever been before for teams to make trades and especially to take money. Brogdon's contract is extremely valuable because it's $20 million. You can easily put it towards a superstar. If you're making a trade... If I'm a team and I'm trading away my star, I don't want a bunch of salary back. I don't. I want basically usually young players or draft picks, and I want cap relief. I want players on short deals who are going to be gone soon, so I have flexibility and money. So Brogdon is immensely appealing, not only because you put him on your team and he's just going to be a great, he was sixth man of the year a year ago. He's just a great team player. And when you have him, hey, he can be great for you for a couple of months. And then in the summer, if you decide to go in a new direction, you can trade them. But here's where money isn't everything and where I think it relates to this story. There, the news starting to come out now. It could be Portland angling, but it's starting to sound like more and more people are reporting that like Portland doesn't necessarily want to get rid of him. And it makes sense for them to not do it. And it also makes sense why Brogdon maybe doesn't want to be traded. And I think we have to remember that athletes are people. They have lives. They have agendas and interests that have nothing to do with 
our irrational affection for whatever team we root for. So from the Portland Trailblazers perspective, as awful as they are, they've been public about, we really value him. We value him maybe more for who he is off the court than who he is on the court. He's a professional. He sets a great example. He's a leader. You can't underestimate that on a team that is super, super young. That's probably going to have a lot of turnover in the next couple of years as they look to improve from we're not contending to hopefully we accumulate a bunch of great young players and then start to contend. But like, it's not just these players don't walk off the floor and then get hung up on a rack. Like they're literally human beings. They're, they have to learn. They have to learn the profession. They have to learn the lay of, of the land in terms of travel, in terms of preparation, exercise, diet, like all the things that you have to do that it's always going to mean something more to get that example from a player than from a, a coach or management telling you what to do. It's something else to see a player doing it. So you can see from the trailblazers position, it's not just about money. Like maybe they'd like to keep Brogdon around. Also consider Brogdon's circumstance. Malcolm Brogdon, as I said, he's 31 years old. He's married. He has a child, a young daughter. He spent his first six seasons in the NBA with two teams, Milwaukee and Indiana, which by NBA standards is pretty smooth sailing. Six years, two teams, not bad. Now, in the three seasons since then, he's on his third team. So there's much more volatility. There's much more moving. Also, look at the jumps that he's made. He was in Milwaukee, and then he was in Indiana for a few years. But then he was in, um, oh, good Lord. I can't remember who he was with before Boston. He ended up with, uh, oh, good Lord. Sorry, give me one second. He ended up with someone, and then Boston, and then uh, now Portland. I think it was the was it the Clippers that he ended up with. I just want to give you the geography of so you can see. Oh, I'm sorry. He's it would be. Oh, I see. Sorry, sorry. He played for Milwaukee for three years. Then he played for Indiana for three years. Then he spent one year in Boston last year, where he was sixth man of the year. Then Boston traded him to Portland, and now. If he's traded again, next this would be his third team in less than two years. He may not want that kind of, of fluctuation. His family may not want that kind of fluctuation. Maybe his wife and kids love Portland. Maybe they have great friends there. Like, whatever it is, maybe he doesn't want to uproot his family. Um, and again, in particular, if you're Brogdon, even if Brogdon agreed to it, like the Knicks are heavily, heavily linked with Brogdon. Let's say the Knicks traded for Brogdon. From Brogdon's perspective, everybody knows that the Knicks are they want to trade for him because they have a lot of injuries right now and they made a trade that's left them not too deep in some areas and Brogdon would really fill that gap nicely. But everyone also knows that the Knicks want Brogdon because in the summer, everyone knows the Knicks are going to chase some kind of a star, probably, and Brogdon makes that much, much easier to do because of his contract. He gets you basically halfway to the contract of a star. They can put Brogdon and Evan Fournier, who's a player that they really don't have any use for on the court. Both of those players, their contracts are up next year. So if I have a star making $40 million for the next five years and he doesn't want to be on my team, and the Knicks can give me two players who make the same money and then a bunch of youngsters and picks, but the two players I get back are off the books in a year, great. I just saved like 100 $60 million in four years of tied-up salary. 
But why does Brogdon again want to say, yeah, let me move my family again, maybe only for a few months. And then when June and July roll around, I have no idea or agency over what might happen to me next. And if the Knicks were to trade him to a team for a star, follow the dots. Teams that trade away stars for expiring contracts are generally not good teams. So not only is Brogdon subjecting his family to more personal turmoil, but he would also be subjecting himself to yet another year on a lousy team. And for a guy that near the end of his contract, he may not want to do that. So maybe money isn't everything, as we learned from Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, another NBA story, but I'm actually going to take a slight detour to when your host was freshly out of college with his American studies bachelor degree. And I was going, my, my big dream after I finished undergrad was I was going to be a union organizer. And I spent two years working at a Walmart near me specifically because I wanted to form a union. I was going to break Walmart. I was going to be the superhero who would be the first person to form a union at Walmart. I spent two years there. I was completely unable to get a single person to have any interest um, in a union. I don't blame the people um, for a lot of them who were there. Like they weren't there recreationally. Like they needed this money. There weren't a ton of better options for the general worker where I lived. Um, and also, I mean, I remember literally when I, when I was hired at Walmart, they make you as part of your orientation, part of your orientation, you watch anti-union videos and they're hilarious. If, if, if not also like sad, they literally will show like, it's, it's like a skit and they'll show a person in a car about to leave Walmart after their, their long shift and literally they put the key in the ignition and they're about to drive away. And this maniac starts like pounding on the window of their driving door, their of their driver's side window, and just immediately starts like pressuring them into signing something without like it's the most absurd like caricature of you know evil union rep you can imagine. But it's really pushed very hard there. And like they've never had a union. So clearly Walmart is not an easy nut to crack. So I was there for a bit. I saw horrible things. One of the things I saw that was the worst, I worked in Lawn and Garden my first year at Walmart. And there was a woman there, a very lovely woman. Um, she was the Lawn and Garden like door greeter. So if you're leaving the store through the Lawn and Garden exit, there's always someone there. And they, they check your receipt, they'll put a little highlight it just to make sure, like, okay, you've been checked, you're good. And they tell you, you know, thank you for shopping here, have a nice day, and you go out on your way. And this woman, really lovely woman, she was older, she was in her 60s, and that was her job. She would just stand out there and, and highlight people's receipts. So at one point while she was there, um, she had to have a brain surgery. And when she finished and came back from the surgery, her doctor told her, you cannot be out in the sun. Like after you've had this surgery, you need to get transferred somewhere in the store because direct sunlight, it had to do with her eyes too. She had some surgery where like she was not supposed to be in direct sunlight and she'd been working there for years and she told the store, I can't, you know, I can't be in sunlight. Can you transfer me to this or that department? And the store told her no. And they told her she could continue to work at Lawn and Garden or she could look for a new job. Why do I bring this up? 
I bring this up because it's just a basic human right and dignity that no worker should ever be put in a position by their employer of having to choose between their health and their ability to make a living, which brings us to Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid, center for the Philadelphia 76ers. It has been a decade since... Let me slow down a bit just to make sure we, we all know where this story is headed. So Joel Embiid um, just was injured in the last week. He has some kind of a flap in his meniscus. He, I think, just had surgery or is having surgery this week. And once that's done, then the 76ers will have some sense of, is he done for the year? Is he done for a month? Is he done for two months? They won't know until the procedure is done and they can see the extent of the injury. But Embiid is definitely going to be out for a while. He was probably the front runner for MVP. He will no longer qualify for that for reasons that we'll talk about soon. Um, the Sixers all season have been one of the top three teams in the East. Now they've dropped to fifth. And if he's going to be out a couple months, like they're just going to keep dropping. Um, it's a really devastating injury to one of the most incredible players in the league and um, a team that really, really relies on him. Here's the thing with Embiid's injury. It didn't, it didn't happen because of, I don't think, anyone, but it didn't have to go down this way. Joel Embiid was drafted a decade ago, in 2014. In the decade since he was drafted, he has missed nearly 43% of the 76ers games. This is not a healthy, generally, individual. His first two years after he was drafted, his first two full seasons, he did not play one single minute of NBA action because... He had foot injuries, he had surgeries, he had recoveries. So they drafted him in 2014. He did not start playing until the 2016-2017 season. Even if you discount those first two seasons, if you just say, all right, since he missed those two seasons and he came back, how, what percentage of their games has he missed? Well, in those seven years, he's missed nearly 30% of their games. So he's he's not a paragon of health. He never has been. Everybody knows that that was the fear around him when he was drafted out of Kansas. People knew that year that, like, this guy's probably the best player in the draft, but big men with particularly lower body injuries terrified teams for good reason. Look at Greg Oden. Look at Ralph Sampson. Look at Yao Ming. Look at uh, what happened eventually to Zidrunas Lagat. Well, he played a while. But big men, lower body injuries is not a good combination. And yet... Embiid, over those nine years, ten years, has gone on to become pretty much, I would say, inarguably, the greatest offensive center since Wilt Chamberlain. Um, he was the first, he's the only player, other than I think Wilt, who he was averaging more than a point a minute this year, which is unheard of. Nobody does that. Um, Wilt did it back in the day, but even Wilt, with all his prolific records, Will Chamberlain played so much. There's a year that he literally, an NBA game is 48 minutes long, and there was a year where Chamberlain averaged more than 48 minutes per game because he played like every game, all the all the minutes, and some overtime games. I think he averaged like 48.6, which is a record that will never be broken in the NBA. And still, Embiid, and it's a, it's a much more explosive era. You want to call it a juiced ball era, you can. But nevertheless, despite all the offensive rule changes and all the records and how much easier it is for everybody to score. Nobody else has done what, what Embiid was doing this year. Nobody else has scored more than a point a minute. He's the reigning MVP. He scored 70 points a couple weeks ago. 
Now, this year of all years, that may not mean what it used to, because since then, Luca has scored 73 and other guys have scored 60. But still, the number of centers who have ever scored 70 points, I'm pretty sure, are Will Chamberlain, Embiid, David Robinson, and that's it. He's a phenomenal, exceptional player. Whether you like the Sixers or not, he is one of the Pantheon players in the NBA. This season, the first two months of the year, he only missed three games. I promise you this is all going somewhere. The first two months of the season, he only missed three games. It was obvious recently, particularly since New Year's, maybe a little before then, that he was clearly hurting again. He missed nine games in a little over a month including a nationally televised game in Denver. And this is where the trouble started. The trolls and the childhoodites always like to jump on the fact that they think Embiid is, is Ducks Nikola Jokic, who's the other best center, um, and is last year's MVP. Because Embiid has now missed four of the last five games in Denver, which is where Jokic's team, the Nuggets, play. This idiocy always conveniently ignores the fact that you don't get to be a Joe Embiid's level if you're afraid of anybody. And a week before he missed the game in Denver, Denver was in Philadelphia, Embiid played, scored 41, his team won, and he outplayed Jokic. So it doesn't seem like he's afraid of him. It seems like people know their bodies and we should listen to them. Embiid missed the two games, including Denver, um, before the Sixers played another national game in Golden, nationally televised game in Golden State. The media jumped over Embiid. He was ducking that smoke. He's afraid of Jokic. The NBA fined the 76ers $75,000 for not listing him on the injury report in an accurate and timely manner. I mean, schematics, schematics. He knows his body. The team cares more about having him on the floor than anybody else. If they have to rest him, let him rest. But they can't let him rest because this year the NBA created their new player participation policy, which states that to be eligible for certain awards, you have to play 65 games a year and a certain number of minutes in that time. Um, and also then by this was this was added before the PPP was pushed through. But the NBA now links certain awards to contract eligibility. So, for example... Tyrese Halliburton, who plays for the Indiana Pacers, he's been dealing with a hamstring problem for a while. He has been playing like 20, 25 minutes a game, 22 minutes a game, because that's the minutes threshold you have to hit for a game to count as played. You can't, in the past, the guys would come in for like two minutes and leave to get credit. The NBA said, no, fine. But now you have guys like Halliburton on a hamstring, which is an infamously difficult injury to, to clear. It can always get tripped up. You have this guy not taking the time off that he probably needs, but like trying to have it both ways. Oh, I'll play a little bit, but I'll sit a little bit. The same thing happened with Embiid. After all that crap that he got roasted, his team got fined after that Denver game. So the next game was in Golden State. He was clearly hurt, but he suited up to play that game in any past year. When the player participation policy was not the law of the land, there's no way he plays in that game. But because the NBA, who make $13 billion a year in, year in revenue from their media rights deal, have a...
tremendous problems in both things before. My curiosity, I have never understood why this change was enacted. It was not the result of a collective bargaining agreement. It's not like, okay, where the union and the owners get together and they negotiate all these issues and you hear about what's going to change. This wasn't, this wasn't, oh, there's a, there's a CBA negotiation and we're going to work this in. This came before this season. It came kind of out of nowhere. Um, and if you think the players <laughs> supported it, which you would assume because there's no, I'm very confused about this. I would love to get someone on who could help clarify. I don't think the NBA would be allowed to make this kind of change to the labor structure unilaterally. And there's no chance on earth that the NBA Players Association would let the league in, in good Lord, what's the word? Enforce this unilaterally. Like, even if the NBA wanted to do something nice for the players, just the nature of the relationship between owner and, man, and labor, it would never happen. If the NBA was like, we want to put a, I don't know, a Gatorade in every player's stocking this year, the players would never go for it because the union would have to agree, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I wouldn't accept a gift horse from, from ownership either. But there was no trade-off. Usually in a CBA, if the owners get something they want, you can point to, okay, they got this, but the players got this. It's a negotiation. Both sides get something. I haven't seen any indication from any player after this policy was announced what the union was delivering to their constituents. I don't see how it helps the workers to now give management a hammer to enforce you need to show up and work and we don't care what your body feels like or what you think your body feels like we're going to make this a numbers game that doesn't seem like something that the two sides would agree to and i feel more strongly about this because of what Embiid's teammate paul reed said about the injury and the ppp after the game paul reed said quote i didn't sign up for that rule uh, i don't remember signing no paperwork you feel me i guess the players union okayed it they probably didn't have a choice, though, to be honest. Yeah, it's tough. It adds a lot of pressure to the players. We were just talking about that. A lot of pressure, especially dudes like Embiid, who are trying to get MVP again. So even the players are saying, I don't, I didn't support this. I don't know where this came from. Why is this a rule? And this is Paul Reed. Paul Reed is a career backup. Paul Reed is not a guy who like is out there getting just run and like run and run to the ground like 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 Embiid might be, where like the team wants him out there every single minute. Paul Reed's a bench player. If he's healthy all year, he may not hit the requirement because he may not get 20 minutes in enough games. So for that guy who the rule doesn't even really probably apply to, he's not winning any awards. He's not making any all-star teams. Paul Reed is not affected by this. And yet Paul Reed is saying, I didn't sign up for it. I don't remember signing no paperwork. The line, I guess the union okayed it. They probably didn't have a choice, though. What the hell does that mean? If it's a union, what are you doing? If there's no choice, then you strike. I really would love, and I've tried, I've reached out before to multiple people from the NBA Players Association. Um, there's been a lot of back and forth, and they, they say that they're going to come on, and then they don't. I would love to understand why this rule was ever passed in the first place, because it doesn't give anything to the players besides stress and agita. And just to hammer it home again with numbers, money isn't everything, but numbers are pretty big. The Sixers owner is Josh Harris. Josh Harris has an estimated worth of $8.2 billion. The man owns not one, not two, 
but three different professional sports teams. He owns the 76ers, he owns the Devils in the NHL, and in the NFL, he now owns the Washington Commanders. So Joel Embiid put his health on the line, his career on the line, his legacy on the line, this season on the line, and the fans' best hope for a, a championship on the line so that a man worth over $8 billion can make sure his employees are showing up to work no matter how their body feels. Another story that money isn't everything, but it turns out it's not nothing. And I'm going to admit to a total 180 on this story. I am always, always, always 100% pro-labor in any controversy or situation, even in sports, when people try to make it, oh, that guy's a billionaire. It's not about that. It's not about being a millionaire. It, 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 it's about the imbalance between management and players. Even if a player is a millionaire, they're still closer to your reality than a billionaire. But this story, I don't think I can support the worker in this situation. Here's the story. So Tony Snell was an NBA player for nine seasons. He played for six teams um, through 2022. That's the last time he was in the league. Uh, hasn't signed with a team since. You need in the NBA to play 10. You need to, you have to be signed for 10 seasons, a 10th year of service in order to qualify for premium retirement benefits, which includes medical coverage, like premium medical coverage, NBA medical coverage. So Tony Snell just needs someone to sign him and that will give him a 10th year of service. And then he qualifies for medical benefits. The reason this has become a story, uh, two reasons. One, uh, Tony Snell has two children um, who are on the autism spectrum. And when um, a few players, including a retired player and TNT um, mouthpiece, Charles Barkley, Barkley on, ES, on TNT's uh, Inside the NBA show publicly said, called uh, called out NBA teams and said, somebody needs to sign Tony Snell. He's 32. Someone needs to sign him because then he qualifies for the medical plan. It will give health care benefits for him and his family. Um, and and you see this, and of course, your heart is like, yes, like, my God, I had a whole rant about how, you know, the league makes this much money and they should, they should be doing this for all their players, but certainly for Snell, um, another former player spoke out about this, Drew Gooden, with a nice note of empathy for Snell and all NBA players, Gooden tweeted, quote, the NBA needs to change this rule. I don't care how much money you've made. We risk our bodies and minds for years to not only help ourselves and our families, but this league to profit. And this is a great point from Gooden here. He says, if the average lifespan of an NBA player is three and a half years, why is 10 the number? Meaning, why do you need 10 years to qualify if that's almost three times as long as the average career? So I was all there, man. I was all there. Um, and even when I thought, my brain was like, well, Tony Snell played nine years in the NBA. He was a starter a number of those years. Like, he's got to have money. This isn't, you know, I'm getting completely dicked around right now by New York State with my health insurance. Um, long story short, I literally last semester was teaching. I finally qualified for my employer health insurance. And literally the day that it took effect, they told me that I wasn't being rehired for this semester. So I don't have coverage. So I had left my good state coverage for this employer coverage that I never even really got to access. And it's been a mess since then because like, it doesn't matter. The point is 
Tony Snell made 50, he made more than $50 million in his career. So you might think, that guy doesn't need help. That guy should be getting medical benefits for other people. He don't need no help. But again, if I take my lifetime income and I compare it to Tony Snell, I don't think I've earned a million dollars total in my life. There was some lean ass years, man. I don't think there's any chance I made, I've made a million dollars working in my life, which means that Tony Snell has made at least 50 times as much money as me. I might see that and think, forget him. Guys, look at how much he has. But again, remembering the gap between you and a millionaire is much smaller than even the gap between a millionaire and a billionaire. Snell's made more than 50 times what I've earned. Josh Harris, our old friend, the owner of the Sixers, he's made more than 150 times what Snell has made. So it's not about, I mean, if you want to get into why does someone need that much? Well, if Tony Snell doesn't need that much, the owners certainly don't need that much. But this is where the story took a very late, <laughs> unexpected turn. Um, and it really does speak to money is not everything, but timing is. Um, Tony Snell's wife, while this story was breaking, uh, <laughs> posted on Instagram. I don't know what you call it on Instagram. A post, I guess. She posted on Instagram her in a private jet showing off i was able to count at least nine showing off a collection of at least nine birkin bags i know nothing about handbags and honestly when i first saw like a, a tweet about this i thought a birkin was a gherkin which is a very very different thing i had no idea what a birkin bag is but apparently they're very expensive and she had nine of them all around the plane everyone a different color and in a different seat and the camera's, you know, panning through the plane, showing you all these Birkins. And then her caption at the end says, can anyone beat this or I won? Question mark. When your retired husband is in the middle of a public debate about the need for just a little bit of, of charity to get you and your kids premium medical coverage, that is not the time to go on Instagram and show off your nine Birkin bags on a private jet. So maybe not surprisingly, the deadline to sign Snell has come and gone and nobody signed him. We'll see what happens. A Messi incident in Hong Kong. You may have heard that Lionel Messi, who may be the greatest player ever of the world's most popular sport ever. Messi traveled with his current team, Inter-Miami of uh, America's Major League Soccer, to play a... Uh, a group of, of a Hong Kong team, I guess, of like probably local um, all-stars as part of this off-season promotional tour. It's the first time inter Miami. Uh, which apparently is about $2 million American, uh, in grants to make this event happen. 
Tickets sold out within an hour of it being announced back in December. Prices were ranging between almost $1,000 and almost $5,000, Hong Kong money. Um, there was a training session, even just a training session, just to see them train, not even play, uh, was between 600 and 800 Hong Kong dollars. And that was also sold out. And then they played the game, and it was sold out. And they've been selling messy merchandise for days. And they've been advertising this for weeks. And Messi did not play. And there was no announcement before the game that he would not play. There was no announcement at halftime. Like, you could accept that a fan at one of these things. I know Messi's not going to play the whole game. But he's got to play like a half hour or a half. Nope, he didn't play nothing. This is not the only hiccup in Inter-Miami's world tour. Uh, a week earlier, they were in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia's capital, playing Al-Nassar. I don't know how to pronounce it, sorry. It's N-A-S-S-R, um, which is Cristiano Ronaldo's team. And this was seen as like, oh my God, it's maybe the last time you will ever see it was billed as the so-called, quote, last dance between Messi and Ronaldo, who have been the, you know, like if Jordan and LeBron played at the same time, um, and constantly one topping the other, topping the other. And this was their last probable matchup ever. Ronaldo missed the whole game with a muscle injury. Messi played a few minutes late. Uh, Hong Kong is not happy about this. They are, the government is talking about being reimbursed um, for what they spent on the event. It's an interesting story to me because. I don't think this matters at all, but there's a certain nostalgic charm just to seeing a government getting involved in a a sporting event that has left their people unhappy. Maybe because I'm an American and I'm so used to either owners will get cities to contribute massive amounts of money to to public stadiums that the to, to build stadiums that the, the cities then have no um access to the profits and revenues from or i'm used to american owners if they don't get what they want they'll pick the team up and move them somewhere and just not even care about crushing a whole fan base so i find something charming even though i don't know what will come from it uh on some level there's something charming about a government being like no no well this isn't right we'll stand up for you people um it's an easy target obviously messi doesn't live in hong kong he doesn't work in hong kong he's not going to be there anymore like you can wave your fist or pump your fist at him all you want he's gone but i just thought i don't know for some reason i i find something about that story a little bit charming and then lastly the opposite of charming um and also our last note on how money is not everything this happened a few weeks ago but i haven't had a chance to talk about it yet and i've been dying to talk about it a few weeks ago the Chicago Bulls held a so-called Ring of Honor event where they brought back all these people from the 1990s, players, coaches, management, um, to celebrate the architects of the Chicago Bulls winning six titles in that decade. Incredible run. Uh, I suffered brutally during its whole duration as a Knicks fan, but like an astonishing uh, achievement, like a true, true, true dynasty. 
Jerry Krause was the general manager for both of the Chicago three-peats. So 91 through 93 and then 96 through 98. He was the GM of all those teams. He is hated in Chicago by a lot of people. Um, a lot of people blame him for breaking the Bulls up. The Bulls wanted to come back and defend their title after they had won the sixth one in 1998, but the organization was fixated on moving on. And just a note on that, because it's it's become very easy to caricaturize the Bulls as like the obvious, you know, villains in that story. And the poor Bulls just they're just such noble competitors and just wanted a chance to defend their title. Remember in the 90s that the Bulls were the first real Eastern dynasty to follow what the Celtics had been in the 80s. And if you remember what happened in the Celtics, the Celtics kept all of their great players, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, even I think guys like Dennis Johnson, like they would keep their great players until the end of the road. And when they did it specifically with Bird, McHale, and Parrish, they kind of petered out in the early 90s, and it took about 15 years for the Celtics to get great again. And there was kind of a cautionary note that people at the time observed. Like, okay, maybe you can't be totally sentimental because if you are, this could happen to you. I'm not saying anyone is wrong for thinking the Bulls should have been able to defend it until they lost. Like, I think just as a public interest, that team should have been kept together as long as they could. However, Jerry Krause was not the owner of the Chicago Bulls. Jerry Krause was the general manager. His job is to steer the team in the direction that the owner wants to go in. So it was very clear. That's why they call it the last dance in 98. Everyone knew the Bulls had already been flirting with uh, Tim Floyd, who was the man who would replace Phil, replace Phil Jackson. Floyd was invited to, I think, the owner, Reinsdorf. There was a wedding, and the Bulls were invited. And Floyd was invited, but Phil Jackson was not invited. Like it was, it, it was ugly, and it was obvious that the players had one idea of where to go, and management had another. But Kraus has been vilified over the years for a number of reasons. People will say, "Oh, it's because he broke up the Bulls." It's not because he broke up the Bulls. It's because he broke up the Bulls, and because he was fat, and we hate fat people as a society. And it was because. Michael Jordan made a commercial masquerading as a documentary where he zeroed in on how much he hated Jerry Krause, insulting Jerry Krause, like not just talking about professional differences. Jordan had full editorial control over that commercial and chose to show from decades ago clips of him making fun and making jokes about Jerry Krause. So we get to the event. We get to the Ring of Honor. It's a, it's a Saturday, I think a Saturday night. The Bulls were playing Golden State, who were coached by Steve Kerr, who was a player on the, the second pair of, of three P teams. It was supposed to be this great, wonderful night. They specifically planned it when Kerr was there because they wanted him to be a part of it. Michael Jordan did not come. Scottie Pippen did not come. Scottie Pippen did not come because he did not want to be there if Michael Jordan was there. And I bet you Michael Jordan did not want to be there to deal with Scottie Pippen because their relationship has been in the toilet ever since this documentary came out also. Jerry Krause wasn't there because Jerry Krause passed away, I think, 10 years ago. 
But Jerry Krause's widow was there, Thelma. She came to represent him at this honored event. When they announce Jerry Krause, the crowd boos him. The camera shifts to the Jumbotron. The camera, sorry, the Jumbotron camera shows Thelma, the aged widow, distraught, crying a mess as her dead husband is booed by these people who he helped deliver six titles to. And I know what everyone's going to say who, who has a problem with that. He didn't deliver a thing. It was Michael Jordan. It wasn't. And I wrote about this at the, I wrote about this a couple of years ago for Jacobin. This was a piece that earned me a number of death threats and the most attention I have ever and feedback I've ever gotten on an article in my life. Um, I wrote a piece called Michael Jordan was a capitalist icon. The last dance is his myth-making commercial. If you're curious, you can find it online. Um, at the end of the piece though, I wanted to close by, I was struck watching that series at Jordan's just still, you know, you might hate someone when you're young and then later look back and be like, okay, they weren't that bad or look back and say, all right, I, I, you know, was part of the problem. Michael Jordan, you've heard of fuck you money where like someone has so much money that they're not subjected to like normal social standards. Like it's fuck you money. You have so much money that you can do anything and pay it off. And it's a way of telling the world, yeah, fuck you. Michael Jordan doesn't just have fuck you money. He has like fuck you clout, fuck you everything. Like Michael Jordan doesn't need to care about anything because trust me as someone who got death threats from people in Chicago, we're calling him a capitalist. Like Michael Jordan has an army of people who will fight for him before he ever has to. But there's a distinction between Jordan and Krauss that I think people miss. So talking about art, so people are like, oh, they just won because of Jordan. Anybody could win because of Jordan. No, no, no. Pippen wasn't there when Krauss got there. And Pippen was not like the number one pick. He was a, a high pick, but like it wasn't some slam dunk what Scottie Pippen was going to become. Krauss orchestrated that trade. Krauss hired Doug Collins, who Michael Jordan loved because Collins' offensive strategy was give Michael the ball all the time and get out of the way. Then Krauss fired Collins despite the fact that Jordan loved him so much because Krauss recognized after the Bulls kept hitting a, a ceiling against Detroit that they needed something different than an offense that was just like, let's just rely on Mike. The first person Krauss hired was Tex Winter. Tex Winter was the uh, originator or the, 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 yeah, the originator of the so-called triangle offense that Chicago used during all of their championship seasons. Kraus replaced Collins, not just with anybody, but he replaced him with Phil Jackson at a time when no one had, Phil Jackson was not on anybody's radar. He had coached in the old Continental Basketball Association. If you're familiar with the Albany Patroons, good for you. That was Phil Jackson's, that was his leg.
uh, Kukoc was a key member of the Bulls' last three titles. Kraus, and this is what I think, and I wrote about, I think was most impressive about and particularly contrasted to Jordan, particularly Jordan later as an owner and an executive. Kraus initially was very against the idea of trading for Dennis Rodman because when Dennis Rodman had been a, a Detroit Piston in the 80s, he was a major Chicago antagonist. He he had a brutal flagrant foul on Scottie Pippen and basically shoved him like into the basket stanchion. He would maul Michael Jordan. He had been a very challenging personality and he had bullied and beat up the Bulls. But other voices in the front office kept making points to Krauss about why they thought it should happen. And Krauss trusted the people around him enough to approve the move. Contrasted with Jordan, who even lost a, a decades-long friendship with Charles Barkley because Barkley said once about Jordan, quote, as much as I love Michael, this is when Jordan was the owner of the Bobcats and they were terrible. Barkley said, quote, as much as I love Michael, until he stops hiring them kiss asses and his best friends, he's never going to be successful. Krauss inherited Michael Jordan and he didn't sit back and say, this is good enough. He took chances, he took gambles, and it paid off. And then after they won three, he could have retired and just gone off into the sunset. But he stayed around and he helped do it again. Jerry Krause deserves better than the legacy that he's now been saddled with. The people booing him deserve to be ripped, but also so does Michael Jordan. Because this none of this is happening if Michael Jordan was not endorsing it. So money's not everything. Michael Jordan's got all the money in the world. Maybe not the classiest girl. That's it for this episode of the Jackerman Sports Show. Thank you for listening, as always. Remember, I mean, you probably do follow us on Twitter, but if you don't, or if you just left Twitter for a while and thought, maybe I'd like to come back, look for us at Jackman Sports. If you have any suggestions about someone or something you'd like to hear on the pod, email Sports at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the Patreon. Just because I can't access it doesn't mean you can't. Patreon.com slash Jacobin Sports Show. That is it for this episode, comrades. I will be back in touch with you ASAP. Love to you all. Peace. <laughs>